Thank you for subscribing to the Shepherd's Church Podcast. This is our Lord's Day Sermon. We pray that as we declare the Word of God, that you would be encouraged, strengthened in your faith, and that you would catch a greater vision of who Christ is. May you be blessed in the hearing of God's Word, and may the Lord be with you. Good morning. Our unworthiness are at the heart of our understanding of the gospel. 
verses like this come to mind, right? All of us like sheep have gone astray, right? We have turned everyone to his own way from Isaiah. Paul himself points out, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are wretched sinners. We love the word wretched as Christians, right? <laughs> Um, we are saved by the grace of God alone. And at this point, you might be thinking forward into passages about the Holy Spirit's work in our lives towards sanctification. And it is true that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Second Corinthians. But Paul also wrote later in the book of Philippians, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which Christ also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. So here is Paul telling us to live a life worthy of the gospel when we know that none of us are worthy in and of ourselves in terms of our own behavior. So let's look at the text to see what Paul means, reading from Philippians 1, 27 through 2, 16. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection or compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to grasp, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for these passages. Thank you for your inspired word. Lord, thank you that you have put us into a community of faith and that you have saved us with the miraculous gift of your Son, Lord, who we do not deserve. Lord, we long to understand what it is to live a life worthy of the gospel. Teach us through this passage, Father. Help us to get a glimpse of what that means and how we are to approach it. Lord, as always, let your glory be first. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this passage, we want to understand the context, right? We always want to look at the context of a passage of Scripture. So let's um, look at how this came about in, in, in the book of Philippians. 
After his greeting to the church, Paul talks about his circumstances in Rome, where he's a prisoner. And he wonders about whether he will be there and die there, or whether he will be freed to continue on in ministry. And as he ponders this, and as he ponders his life, he realizes that for him, great statement, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? That, that has rung out through the ages right? as a, a rally cry for Christians. He looks forward to being with the Lord in death because he knows that that will be better. But as he ponders this, he realizes that God's plan is likely to be that he's going to be free from more ministry to continue to build up the church to exalt Christ. That naturally begs the question, what is this thing we call church, and how does it exalt Christ? Since Paul's introduction begs the question, it should not be surprising that the rest of Philippians is answering that question. Living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. We'll look at it from three different perspectives. What is a life worthy of the gospel? Why do you want it? And how do you live it? So starting with what is a life worthy of the gospel, right up at the beginning, Paul answers it with three statements, three phrases. Standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything in your opponents. So I'm going to take a little bit of a side path here before we come back to look at each of those statements in detail. But one of the things I noticed when I looked at those three statements is you can characterize those three statements as a method, standing firm in one spirit, sort of a statement of being, and then a mission, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and then a context, not frightened by anything in your opponents. So a method, you could almost call it a strategy, Right? How are we going to accomplish something? Then a mission, the desired outcome, the objective, and then the context, the environment, and the other players, the other people involved. So before we even look at that, the order tells us a lot. It's not the order that you would expect if you think about it. Normally, you would expect to get the mission first. What is it we're going to do? Then we get the strategy, how are you going to do it? And then you get the context and, and some uh, some information about that mission that you're doing. So um, picture, if, we, if, if you will, right? Here's, a, here's an example of how we would expect it to go. All right, church, we're going to take that hill. Spiritual forces of wickedness in high places as a camp on the left side. Elder Derek, lead the charge directly into the enemy's teeth using your huge shield of faith and your breastplate of righteousness. You can take down the enemy's fire. Deacon Dan, gird your loins. Flank the enemy running with your boots of peace. Everyone else, get out your helmets of salvation. Get out your Bible swords. Maintain continuous prayer communications. Keep your feet when you encounter the enemy because they will do their best to trip you up with their schemes. If you encounter a roaring lion, seeking whom they devour, run away. Do not engage. We almost always start with the mission, and then the objective, and then we talk about the strategy, and then we talk about the context. But God's ways are not our ways. And we see this pattern starting with the method and the identity before we get to the mission and the behavior. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He starts with the way. He's the method. 
He's the means. He's the truth, the mission, and he's the life, the context. The disciples were looking out for instructions on how, on how to find their way to the destination, and Jesus said, fix your eyes on me. When the Lord, wherever the Lord leads his church, he doesn't want our eyes on the destination, he wants our eyes on him. When we have a mission, we only have a mission when we are in Christ. The Ten Commandments begin with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He establishes that relationship first. Then he addresses behaviors. If he's not your Lord, the Ten Commandments are simply the ten reasons you deserve to die. If he is your Lord, they are the ten reasons that Jesus died to save you. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he told them to wait until the Spirit came. When they were born again in the Spirit, the method, being led by the Spirit, that would enable the mission of preaching the gospel. All these examples kind of point to the same truth. The mission is God's, not yours or mine. We don't have a mission. We're the ones being saved. So that was a bit of an aside from the passage, but hopefully worthwhile, to highlight that every nuance of scripture bears study to properly understand the Spirit's intent of the passage. So let's get back to the passage. Let's look at the method and the mission and the context of Paul Paul. The method, standing firm in one spirit. The mission, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And the context, not frightened in anything by your opponents. So let's look at standing firm in one spirit. To stand firm, there has to be a foundation upon which we stand. Right? What are we standing on? Paul talks to the foundation in chapter 1. Chapter Philippians 1 6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. The foundation that we stand on is the power and purpose of God in you. If you want an unshakable place to put your feet, a place where you can stand firm, look no further than God Himself. The word is always the world is always scheming for the church's attention, trying to get us to engage in battles of their choosing, tempting us to put our hopes in anything other than God Himself. Sort of looking back at the American church over over the last 100, 150 years, in the 19th and early early 20th century, the world challenged the church intellectually with philosophy and science. And much of the church fell trying to stand on those foundations, trusting in them more than God's word. Is there anything wrong with philosophy and science? No. They are excellent and noble pursuits. But they are a terrible foundation because they change with the times. I was reading an article last week summarizing some of the impact of the James Webb Space Telescope uh, observations over the last two years. It actually launched and was first used on Christmas Day two years ago. Uh, here are a few quotes based on data that has been coming in from the James Webb Telescope. From what existing theories and models tell us, the galaxies that the James Webb Telescope found are too big, and the mature red stars in them too old, that the study authors said this, the find creates problems for science. <laughs> Another quote, it calls the whole picture of early galaxy formation into question, study co-author Joel Aja said in the statement. I don't care what the value of the Hubble constant comes out to be, said Adam Rice, an astronomer at Johns Hopkins, a Nobel, a Nobel 
Nobel laureate. I want to understand why our best tools, our gold standard tools, are not agreeing with each other. And particle physicist David Gross, a former director of the Kavli Institute for Theoretical Physics in California, said, I wouldn't call it a tension within the community or a problem, but a crisis. And good, good Christians are still falling prey to depending on science and logic and philosophy rather than on the word of God. As though scientific support will add to the gospel or cause them to be saved. In the mid-20th century, the world challenged the word world, world challenged the church morally with civil rights and social justice. And much of the church fell trying to stand on morality and ethics, trusting in humanism, social science, and politics rather than God and his word, as though political alignment with scripture will cause men to be saved. Today, the world is challenging the church culturally with identity politics, and many churches have fallen or are falling, trying to stand on cultural influence, either by incorporating or moralistically opposing identity politics, as though cultural alignment with scripture will cause them to be saved. Brothers and sisters, we stand on God alone, by grace alone, which comes from Christ alone, through faith alone, revealed by scripture alone. We do not carry the banner of Christian ideals, or Christian morals, or Christian culture. We carry the banner of the risen Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. We don't stand firm in righteousness and truth. We stand firm in the indwelling Spirit of God. It is He who has begun a good work in you. What is this good work that God has begun in you, upon which you can stand unshaken? It is reasonable to look at what Jesus prayed for his church, I think, as a safe bet about God, what God will do. If Jesus prayed for something, there's a pretty good chance that God is going to answer that prayer. So we look back at Jesus' prayer, which we looked at in chapter uh, 17 of John, uh, when, when uh, Kendall was preaching through that. I'll read his prayer. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their work. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. The good work that Jesus asked God to accomplish in you, in me, is that we would be made perfect in one. His purpose is that we would be fully grafted into his church, that we would live lives of love for one another that mirror the love between God the Father and Jesus. The good work he has begun in you isn't to make you a better person, nor is it to build up your knowledge of the word of God. These are good things, and he will do those things. But they are not there for your glory, not God's. God's good work in you, together with all the saints, is to, is to gather you together with all the saints in full unity, demonstrating love and charity and righteousness, using our knowledge of God to proclaim the gospel and to disciple new believers that will be seen among the nations and bring glory to God. 
that they may be perfect in one, the perfect bride of Christ. A life worthy of the gospel is the church in unity. As I stepped back and I thought about all the parts of that, I was realizing one of the remarkable things about God's truth is that the whole is beautiful and integrated, but every part is good in and of itself as well. There is no limit to the goodness of God. It's like, it's like a hologram, no matter how you look through it, you see the scene from different perspectives. God is good from kernel all the way out to the wholeness of everything. What I mean by that is that our unity in itself is good for us. It's the very purpose of our being, and it is a deep, deep blessing in and of itself just to be in a community of, of loving friends and, and fellow family members. But it also accomplishes a good thing, proclaiming God's glory to the world, which is a good thing in and of itself as well. By itself, it is great for God to be glorified in this world. And that proclamation is used by the Spirit to convict others of the truth of the gospel who were discipled into the church, into the unity of the church. And so it comes full circle back around to the church again. So the, this purpose of unity in the church is, is, is like a perfect sphere. Every piece of it is perfect all the way around. In the world, we start with the mission, and if the mission is important enough, we pursue it by any means necessary. And we see that all the time in the world with politics and cultural wars, jihads, and you name it. For the church, our methods, our mission, and our context are all holy and all bring glory to God. We love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us because in God's kingdom, the method, unity of the church, is the end state of the mission, making disciples of all nations, who are also the context of the church, our opponents. So we love our opponents, and we disciple them into the church, and so the method, the mission, and the context are all part of, of one unity of purpose. The work that God has begun in you and I, that Paul is confident will be completed, is that you would be in his church in perfect unity that mirrors the unity between God the Father and Jesus. So we stand firm in the church. And Paul says in one spirit, what spirit unites the church? The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. And Paul picks up that theme over in Romans, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we call out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. If you are in Christ, stand firm in God's purposes to unite you to his church through the Holy Spirit. And not a church which is a club that you will join, but a family into which you will be born, born again, crying together, Abba, Father. Right? We think about our born-again experiences, all about our relationship with Christ, but we are born again into Christ's church. We are born again into this family. Are you seeing the beauty of God's plan in the church, this unity? Are you catching the vision, God's perfect vision of a perfect, beautiful, unified church that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, worthy of Christ coming and dying? Let's look at a little bit more into the mission. 
Paul says we are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This family into which we've been born has a Lord, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ, the firstborn of creation, the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God. This family has at its head the Word made flesh, God's purpose incarnate. Years ago, there was a popular Christian book called The Purpose Driven Church. The heart of the Purpose Driven Church was suggesting that if the church would just align itself with the central message of the gospel, it would be successful. But our gospel is not a message. Our gospel is Jesus Christ himself. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The gospel of Christ is Christ himself. He didn't send us the right message. He came himself. When Kendall's on here, it's a much because he's louder. And he didn't bring riches from heaven to pay the price of the dust. He was the price. When we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, we are side by side with him. Holding out his battered, agonized, pierced, killed body for sinners as payment for this. And we are holding out his resurrected body as proof of the promise of eternal life. We are pointing to him as the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf for the assurance of salvation. And we point to him as coming king, as assurance of justice and victory, when every person will kneel and bow and with their tongues confess that Jesus is Lord. That is what it means to strive side by side for the gospel, is to strive side by side with Jesus in his mission to save. And we confirm that by going back in chapter 1 when Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always offering prayers with joy in my every prayer for you, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. That is the mission, striving side by side for the gospel. And finally, we look at the context. Paul says that you and I will live this out, not frightened, by our opponents. So we live in unity and strive together for the gospel in the presence of opponents. Not surprising. I think we all feel that, right? Mm -hmm. There are several opponents that Paul could be talking about, but what's clear is that they are opponents of the church, not directly of God. Paul says, your opponents, not God's opponents. The fact that the church has opponents means that we have a purpose that is opposed. Notice Paul doesn't use the term enemies. Opponent implies someone who's working against your goals and objectives. You, when you sit down at the game of chess, you have an opponent. They're not your enemy per se. They're not trying to bring you down. They're trying to defeat your purposes. Satan is our enemy looking to devour us. But who are our opponents? Our opponents could be many things, and I'll, I'll list a few possible opponents that we should consider. The soul enslaved by sin is an opponent. They are looking to resist the lordship of Jesus Christ, to escape the hearing of the gospel. Other faiths and religions are opponents. They are looking to bring a false gospel, almost always self-salvation through effort or compliance. False teaching in the church is a frequent opponent of the true church, 
looking to bring the truth of the gospel under the authority of human wisdom and reason. And there's atheism in its various forms that denies salvation altogether, along with the very existence of meaning and truth and love and hope. All of these opponents are looking to prevent the growth of the church from worshiping God, declaring Jesus as Lord, and making disciples and bringing the gospel to the nations. So I'm not going to go into each of those opponents, but what they have in common is that they're utterly toothless and bankrupt in the face of the church. We have the truth of God revealed in Scripture. We have the person of Jesus Christ. We have the unity of the Spirit that demonstrates the very love that is the very character of the triune God. And we are led by the Lord Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of the gospel. What do these opponents have against that? Human ideas, incoherent thoughts and lies, with no better purpose or meaning beyond do good, or make the world a better place, or eat, drink, and marry, for tomorrow we die. We have no need to fear these opponents, or the poor people enslaved by them. Indeed, we are called to love our enemies and pray for our opponents. They are the very nations to whom we are called to bring the gospel of salvation. So a life worthy of the gospel is believers standing fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, unafraid of the opposition. Why do we want it? It should be somewhat clear by now. Part of the answer to why every believer should want that life is the phrase worthy of the gospel. As we said at the beginning, the life being described by Paul is worthy. It has worth. How much worth? Enough for God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to plan and execute the gospel from the beginning of time. Enough for Jesus to humble himself and die for the sins of man. What worth has God ascribed to saving men through the church? He emptied himself for it. If that phrase is not enough, Paul points out the effect. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of their destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too for God, from God. A unified church is a sign of the destruction of opposition and a sign of our salvation. As the church comes together in unity, we are united with Christ as Christ is with the Father. Our unity is the ultimate family resemblance. As the Father and Son are one, we are one. And if we are one, we must come from the Father and Son. That kind of unity only exists in God's family. Jesus prayed that we would be made perfect as one. We want it because we will be made perfect. Continuing in that passage, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now appear to be in me. Paul's continuing on, pointing out that in joining this family and having the same unity of mind and purpose as Jesus himself, we will also suffer for his sake as he suffered for our sake. 
we will have the same conflict that the Philippians see Paul having, which is the same conflict that brought Jesus to the cross. The conflict of bringing the gospel against opposition in the lives of men. This is also a sign that you are part of God's family. But given the chance to be made perfect, to be worthy of the gospel of Christ, sacrificing for such a prize is truly an honor and a blessing. We are made perfect only in the church, and that should make us love the church even more. So how do you live it? Well, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul fleshes out practical elements of the unity of the church. Let's read that again. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation in love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection or compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Having this have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow on, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. I'll just note a few things here, although obviously that passage could be a sermon of its own. First stating the obvious, in case you've missed it, a life worthy of the gospel is only lived in the context of the church. No individual Christian can live a life worthy of the gospel without being fully within Christ's church. That's challenging. Now look at the strong relational words that Paul uses. Consolation, comfort, fellowship, love, accord. The unity of the church is bound up in deep commitment and love for one another. This is not an intellectual unity. This is familial. <clears throat> Paul says we must look out for one another, not just protecting, but also participating in the interests of one another. We are a family. The second stands out in the example of Jesus. If you were in any doubt at this point about the importance of the church in the mind of God, take note of the structure of this passage. The Holy Spirit breathing out his word through Paul in Philippians relegated Jesus to an example for his main subject, which is the church. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords was just used to make a point about an important topic. So let's not miss the point of the example. If the one who holds all things together humbled himself to the point of being used as an example. What is being called out is Jesus' self-perception. Jesus, in very nature God, humbled himself to take on our interests. Jesus was not at risk of mockery, but he was mocked for our sake. Jesus was not under threat of death, but he took our death. Jesus looked to our interests rather than his own. 
and so was exalted by God. The path to unity in the church is one of humility. Any grasping of power, any exercising of pride, any assertion of righteousness has no place in the church because it has no place in Jesus. Our unity is in commiseration, in sacrifice, in comforting, and in interceding for one another. It is not in winning the war of ideas and defeating the mockers in debate. Jesus did none of these things. And Paul set him before us as the example of how we live a life worthy of the gospel. Jesus is both the example of a life worthy of the gospel, and he is the gospel. The unity he shares with the Father is the same unity that he had that he plans for the church as a means of making us perfect as one. Unity in the church doesn't make the church better. It is the essential characteristic of the true church. It is not optional for the believer. And no disunity in the church will be in the right of Christ at his return. She will be perfect as he prayed without blemish. If you are causing disunity in the church for any reason other than the reformation of the church back to conformity with scripture, you should be worried about the validity of your position in the bride of Christ. If you're harboring distrust or resentment for a fellow believer, if you're allowing gossip or innuendo to exist within the body, if you're holding yourself aloof rather than building up the body, if you're too busy to participate in discipleship and church events, if you're not investing any of your worldly wealth to benefit God's church, if you're viewing church as the job of the elders and the deacons, understand that Jesus prayed for you about this. He took the betrayal and the beatings and the deaths that we deserve because we've all done all those things. And he even now sits at the right hand of God praying for your interests above his own. Do not hold yourself back. Repent and believe the good news. I'll end with Psalm 133, which Derek started us with. Psalm 133 is a very short psalm, only three verses, but it's a beautiful summary of what Paul has been talking about in Philippians. A remarkable summary, actually. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edges of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing of life forevermore. Aaron was the brother of Moses and was the first high priest of Israel. The oil poured over his head and running down his beard symbolizes lavish, lavish blessing and, a, and anointing for him. So Aaron was the high priest. Who is our high priest? It is Jesus, our Lord and Savior. When we dwell in unity, we are a blessing upon Jesus, like an, the ultimate spa treatment. We are being made worthy of his death and resurrection. And the last verse is remarkable. There in the unity of the church, in the blessing of Christ, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Our unity is the place of blessing of eternal life. While each of us may enter eternal life at a different moment in time, we will live forevermore together in unity with our people. <coughs> Let's pray.
Father, sometimes your scripture is overwhelming. We get a glimpse of the magnificence of your plan. We get a glimpse of this church that you have called us to be. And it can be overwhelming because we know how far short we fall. We are sometimes as stubborn and as stiff-necked people. And yet we have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords interceding for us on our Lord, you viewed your church and the unity of your church as important enough, as worthy for your son to come and die. Father, sink the truths into our head. We often, so often, rightfully, Focus our attention on worshiping you and on your son, Jesus, and on the spirit within us. When we lose sight of the magnificence of what you have planned for us, Lord, help us in humility to love one another, to submit to one another, to pray for one another, to care for one another the way you desire that to be done. Draw us into the unity that reflects the unity of the Godhead. Pray this in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.